I remember when I was a kid, all I wanted was there was these toys called robotics. Yeah, I don't remember. And they were like, they were like, you could put them together and you could build robots. And there was, it was like Legos, except it was like more rigidly constructed, you know, sort of thing. And I wanted that and I wanted Mike McGee to live in my hometown. Yeah, like, like Bionicles, kind of, except a little like bigger, more rigid. And I, I remember, the, oh, there was also another toy called the Omnibot. I wanted that. It was, it was like by Hasbro or Tomy. And it was, it, it could like go open the fridge and get you a soda. My mom wouldn't let me have soda. And she also wouldn't let Mike McGee live in my hometown either. Yeah, I know. I know. Well, you know, but now I'm a grown ass man and I have eBay and I can have these things. And now, Mike McGee lives in my town. Do you understand? Yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't even get over it. I was like, what? I've got, I've got paper, like paper, you know, right? Uh, and, and like money. Okay. You got it. All right. And I can just, I can, I can just, I can just like log on to the eBay's and I can just buy whatever I wanted to have when I was a kid. Well, then I was like, well, I don't, it doesn't, it doesn't, I don't need, where am I going to put a robot? That's like, it's like four feet tall and it's got tank treads. Like, I can't use that, but I could use a Mike McGee living in my town. And now it's true. And now here we are on our final night in the Amadeus project and joining us and like really like. Really like setting the tone, I think. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please welcome our new neighbor, Mike McGee, to the stage. Mighty Mike McGee, ladies and gentlemen! Somewhere in the cold midnight of Boise, Idaho, two women prepare to leave town together. They're tired of drawing public attention to the way they hold each other's hands. Couples in Idaho do hold hands. They just don't usually look like two women. So they hit the road for California where people still segregate themselves from each other. And every city's east side is feared by suburbanites because the local news anchor hates the east side. So he reminds us every night on the nightly news just how dangerous it is with all of its minorities in crime. He prefers downtown at midnight where he can afford to be a teenager again and maybe even on top of one. Somewhere on the east side of Vancouver, British Columbia. A 14-year-old woman hops on a bus to get to Hastings Street downtown where her body is worth a little bit more. She wonders if any girl has ever taken their pimp to the school prom and watches out for all the hookers who are younger than her. Dead mothers cannot question a child who sleeps through the afternoon. When she has enough money, she'll catch a bus to Montreal or Toronto and dance for the rest of her life. But currently, it is midnight 
and she has rent to make. At midnight in Hollywood, there are waiters and waitresses practicing their Academy Award acceptance speech while serving you chicken wings and hash browns. At midnight in Denver, there are poets heating up their dinners on radiators and washing their clothes by hand because quarters are saved for buses and homeless people. At midnight in San Antonio, a man holds a party because the body warmth will heat up his house just long enough for him to get a few hours of sleep before teaching his elementary school class in the morning. At midnight in Portland, a college student sleeps in someone else's bed every night so she can continue her education. At midnight in Seattle, a man hears a poem that might keep him alive for one more day. At midnight in San Diego, an illegal immigrant puts American cash in an envelope to be mailed back to his family in Mexico while eating his first Big Mac on his late-night lunch break. At midnight in Oklahoma City, a young girl gets drunk for the first time and realizes it is the best thing to do because it is the only thing to do. At midnight in Chicago, a man sits in jail for the first time in his life for a crime he did not commit. He knows nobody will believe him because he knows all too well the color of his own skin. He marvels at how far we've come. At midnight, in some of the worst parts of Detroit, a woman prays to her God for the first time in years because of something she heard on the news. She really wants tomorrow to be a better day. At midnight, in San Jose, California, a fat man puts more food into his mouth to try to feel better about the world or simply forget it altogether. At midnight, throughout the rest of the world, people are exactly who they should be. They are you. And you are quite possibly someone you'll never share with anyone else. You're the ones who could leave hot food at the feet of sleeping homeless people and then worry about your next meal when no one's looking. You're the ones who may never function at noon. The ones everyone will say left the planet just a little too soon. You might not have tongues, but you have a lot to say. I talk a lot, but I'm learning how to listen too. You're doing what it takes to stay sane and alive. Maybe you're not wearing the finest clothes. Maybe you're online and searching. Maybe you're making free calls on phones you cannot afford. But no matter what, you're reaching out to yourselves in an attempt to find perfection. Whether it is within yourself or in someone else. But somewhere out there, it must exist. It must be possible to achieve what we all want. Because if it isn't, if it isn't, then that means midnight comes to us for no reason. That means we start over every single day for no reason. So there must be something perfect in this world. And I believe that it comes to us all, every single one of us, at midnight. Thank you. I'm, I, it's, it's, it's very strange. This microphone, like, it, I have to side with Robert on this one. Uh, it's wonderful because the sound is, is fantastic. Uh, but it's, it's like you're, it's like you're behind a giant person in a movie theater. Uh, it's just like, I'm like, have to look around it. It's, it's hilarious. Uh, so, uh, can you, is, uh, Boris, are you back there? Am I, are you picking me up just fine? If I have it this low? Okay, good. This way I can actually see you guys. That's why I wear glasses so I can see faces in, in the audience. Um, Hello, everyone. Um, I, uh, so first off, uh, uh, two years ago today, uh, one of my best friends in the whole world passed away. Her name was Melissa Hagerty. I have tattoos on my wrists, MH, they're Scrabble tiles, because she was my Scrabble buddy. Uh, and uh, the third girl I ever kissed, she followed me everywhere. Like, she saw me perform. I mean, I was like the Grateful Dead, and she was a deadhead, you know? Um, only we were chubby. And... Uh, <laughs> 
and so uh, she's gone. You know, uh, her birthday was exactly two weeks ago, and she she was 33. Uh, so she was my Jesus. You know, uh, and 33 is my favorite number. Um, so uh, so tonight is for Melissa. You know, who uh, this book uh, is partially dedicated to uh, all my sisters because I have a lot of them. Uh, this is called In Search of Midnight, just like the last poem I just read. Um, and I have copies of these back there. So I will gladly sign one for you. And if, if you don't have any money, you want to trade like 75 hugs or something, let me know. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, on a lighter note, uh, I mean, well, still very serious, uh, cause it's all I ever do is serious stuff. Um, I was hanging out at this bar one night. I was really lonely. I was feeling super lonely and I was just like, Minding my own business, writing poems, you know, like my penmanship was getting worse and worse and worse, uh, and uh, writing it on napkins, and just, just, just seething with loneliness. And this woman comes in, and she sits right next to me in a pretty empty bar. Like, she definitely gravitated toward me. And for about 10, 15 minutes, she's just trying to start a conversation. I'm like, can't you see I'm lonely, and I'm trying to write it down? Like, leave me alone, you know? And, uh, so I, I, you know, finally I, if it clicks and I realize she's, she's hitting on me, she's flirting with me. She's trying to generate a dialogue with me. And so finally she gets up to leave and I stop her. I'm like, wait, wait, where are you going? She's like, I have to get home and feed my cat. And I'm thinking your cat's fine. It will survive a night without you. She says, well, he can't be alone overnight. I tell her I feel the exact same way all the time. And I actually have something to offer the world. (laughs) She says her cat is special. It sounds like he says Reno when he meows. Reno? Reno, Nevada? She goes, "Mm mm-hmm, yep. I go, so I imagine a cat saying Reno. That sounds fantastic. And I I picture it. It's like, Reno. Reno. Reno, Nevada. Every time, is in every time it meows, it says Reno. No, only every once in a while, like when he's really craving attention, needs to be brushed. Oh, I say. Oh, I tell her that when I'm craving attention, I remove my shirt, exposing my Catherine Hepburn-shaped birthmark, and I make it talk. Hello, everybody. Got any more tequila? <laughs> she liked tequila. I, guess. I think it's from a movie. Look, lady, by now you must realize I am human, and I have needs, and I can love you. I can actually love you. I'm not jumping the gun here, but I am capable of real human love. Not this programmed feline, you're the keeper of the food, so I guess I'll stick around bullshit. Does your cat have the ability to make an entire room laugh without it having anything to do with its own failure? Can your cat use a QWERTY keyboard? Does your cat know how to code even a modicum of HTML? Can your cat Photoshop images of you to look like you have a handlebar mustache? I don't think so! I can do half of those things while I have soup cooking on the stove. See these thumbs, do you? Do you really? Because these mean I win. You're right, she said coyly. And we boned right there at Taco Bell. Nine months later, we had eight kittens. They run my website now. Thank you. Oh, the sillies, the sillies. 
In 2003, Viggo Mortensen was the first celebrity I ever farted in front of. Uh, we had just performed uh, a, at a poetry event and were alone in the upstairs green room of the Beyond Baroque Theater bookstore near Los Angeles. Uh, Vigo wanted to know if I had watched his performance and if I had any advice on how to use a microphone. First of all, I'd say, like, that dude was so handsome. Like, normally I'm not terribly attracted to most guys, but that guy, like, in, like he's, like, six feet taller than me. And uh, and I just I couldn't get over how, like, gorgeous he was. Uh, and... um. So I was shocked and honored that he wanted my advice on how to use a microphone. And uh, I'd never known a man could be so humble and beautiful at the same time. A part of me wanted to know what it might be like to punch him in the mouth with my mouth. So uh, <laughs> there's <laughs> nothing like spilling your own personal collection of methane to cock block yourself. Uh, as my cheeks did their best to dam the remainder of the silent, awful river, he spoke with quiet intensity. You are a very good performer, Mike McGee. He never flinched or signaled any pain or discomfort throughout our conversation. I thanked him again and again, understanding now why so many people around the world adored him. He was so comfortable uh, in my presence, and I became so comfortable in his presence that I, I had this sense that I could have just let the rest of it out in front of him. He likely would not have noticed, and if he had, I think he actually just would have applauded, like, powerful stuff, Mike. <laughs> powerful stuff. Yes. <laughs> Might he be preparing himself for a role in a film as a sewage worker? Was he such the thespian that he could act away his sense of smell at the first sign of danger? It didn't matter. His ability to make that room feel like my bathroom was unforgettable. Thank you. Oh, I got so much poetries for you guys and stories and things and stuffs. Um, oh, and that sign-up list that's going out, that's not for me. That's for Poetry Night, so you guys will know. You guys know that, right? You understand that? Like, if you sign that up on that, you'll know, like, where to go uh, next Monday. Um, but, yeah, I live in town, and I also run an event semi-monthly called Kitchen Session. We had one last month, or this this past month. It was fun. It was a great time, uh, and we're having another one in March, March 9th. So if you want to know about it, please come talk to me directly, and I'll uh, get your email address and let you know. <clears throat> I was hanging out with Jesus the other day, uh, drinking grape soda on his balcony. We watched the sun go down beyond Los Angeles. I had hoped for wine. He said I should have brought some. <laughs> we talked a lot. I asked him what it was like to die. He said it was his favorite out of all of his dad's art projects. Death is so quick compared to life because it is that awesome. I asked Jesus what he liked about today, and it took him too long to respond. I dozed off and dreamt of four men on Shetland ponies, riding around breaking windows. They were the four midgets of the apocalypse. They burned down miniature golf courses and stabbed people below the waist. Jesus woke me up and presented me with an omelet, which was delicious! As any evening breakfast would be when made by the Son of God. <laughs> like, right, like he's gonna fuck it up, you know? <laughs> I made eggs. <clears throat> I told him that he seemed like the cool older brother I never had. He thought that was cool and asked me to stop masturbating so much. <laughs> I told him that every day I feel a certain sense of unexplainable loneliness. He 
He said it was because I spend too much time alone. I pondered that for a moment while he offered me hash browns. His apartment was decorated with film posters that told his story in some way. Last Temptation of Christ, Jesus Christ Superstar, and Repo Man. One of the movie posters was signed by Willem Dafoe. He spoke well of the actor, but Jesus doesn't own a DVD player. Over time, I got the feeling that the human part of him wants to be forgotten, but the heavenly side is anxious to introduce everyone to his dad. I asked him why he moved to L.A. He said it was the hidden beauty, that having to search for the good meant that when it was found, it had to be authentic. He also pointed out that L.A. is one of the few places a man dressed like him can still go unnoticed in public. We watched Mexican television. He interpreted all of the game shows and soap operas. It stayed warm well into the night, so I slept on the balcony while Jesus wandered the streets looking for lost souls. In the morning, he woke me to another omelet. This time wrapped in a, this time rolled in a big flour tortilla. I wasn't hungry, so he wrapped it and put it in a bag. Then he asked me to shave his head. I felt really uncomfortable, but he said it was okay and that his strength came from somewhere else. He just wanted to fit in with the rest of us. So I shaved his head and waddled home. Later that afternoon, I noticed one of his hairs stuck to my collar. If I had a girlfriend, she found it before me. She might wonder who it came from, but I don't. She can't, so she won't. <laughs> I pulled out the breakfast burrito and birthed it from its aluminum foil. I noticed a face burned into the tortilla. A surprising miracle for me to enjoy. He knew I wouldn't share it with anyone else. But it did make me wonder how often Jesus promoted himself with food items. For every... 100 new Starbucks that opens around the world, a statue of him cries chocolate milk. I ate my holy burrito neck first and smiled once I realized that it was actually the face of Willem Dafoe. Thank you. Woohoo! Yeah! Stuff and things! Oh! Alright, three, three more poems for you guys. Is that cool? Or 75 more poems? Um, okay. The second time I busted ass in front of a celebrity was in Winnipeg, 2005. I was booked to perform at the Winnipeg Folk Music Festival, as was Edie Brickell of Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians. Uh, we were staying in the same hotel. My hotel card key stopped working, so I sauntered downstairs to the front desk to get a replacement. I crossed through the large hotel lobby feeling quite bloated, and without any warning became instantly unbloated by the time I reached the counter. I froze in place, hoping not to stir the air around me. Edie Brickell approached the counter from the opposite side of the lobby, unknowingly saving herself from cross-draft. As we waited for the desk clerk to unbusy himself, Edie, seeing that I too was holding my room key, began idle chit-chat with me about how this always happens to her in hotels. I nodded very slowly, as not to disturb the air between us. I realized very quickly that the space behind me, that the entire lobby was filling with arriving hotel guests, crisscrossing the space behind me, redistributing the spirit of the Thai curry I'd eaten an hour and a half prior. We waited for the desk clerk to help us. I hoped he would go to her first. She had a hit song in the 80s. She deserved speedier service, and I didn't want to be responsible for Edie Brickell's lack of oxygen. We stood there in silence when my own wave of horrible wind finally flanked me from the left, filling the space between me and Edie Brickell. I had filled the entire hotel lobby with what should have been a secret in my room. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, Edie Brickell coughs out, Oh God, what is that smell? Oh my God! She covers her mouth and continues, That is horrible! She looks to me for support and confirmation. On the outside, I'm Viggo Mortensen. 
powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. But on the, on the inside, I am Muammar Gaddafi seeking refuge in a foreign country. Oh my word. She looked like she might cry. She turns to me, sighing. Their sewer must be backed up or something. All I could say was, not anymore. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six. Dear Neil Armstrong, I write this to you as she sleeps down the hall. I need answers that I think only you might have. When you were a boy and space was simple science fiction, when flying was merely a daydream between periods of history and physics, when gifts of moon dust to the one you loved could only be wrapped in your imagination, before the world knew your name and before it was a destination, what was the moon like from your backyard? Your arm, strong, warm, wrapped across her shoulders, both of you gazing up from your back porch, summers before your distant journey. But upon landing on the moon, as the earth rose over the sea of tranquility, did you look for her? I mean, what was it like to see our planet and know that everything you could be, all you could ever love and long for was just floating before you? Did you? by any chance happen to write her name in the dirt when the cameras weren't looking or surround both of your initials with a heart for alien life to study a million years from now? What is it like to love someone so distant? What words did you use to bring the moon back to her? And what did you promise in the moon's ear about the girl back home? Can you teach me how to fall from the sky? I ask you this, not because I doubt your feet. I just want to know what it's like to go somewhere no man had ever been just to find out she wasn't there. To realize your moonwalk could never compare to the steps that led to her. I now know that the flight home means more. And every July I think of you. I imagine the summer of 1969, how lonely she must have felt while you were gone. You never went back to the moon, and I believe that's because it doesn't take rockets to get you where you belong. I see that in this woman down the hall, and sometimes she seems so much further, but I'm ready for whatever steps I must take to get to her. I've seen so many skies. And the moon always looks the same. So I gotta say, Neil, that rock you landed on has got nothing on the rock she's landed on. You walked around, took samples and left, but she's built a fire, cleaned up the place, and I hope she decides to stay. Because on this rock, we can both breathe. Mr. Armstrong, I don't have much. Many times I've been, I've been upside down trodden, but with these hands comes a heart that is full more often than the moon. She's becoming my world, pulling me into orbit, and I now know I may never find life outside of hers. So I want to give her everything that I don't have yet. So yes, for her, I would go to the moon and back, but not without her. I mean, why? When we could claim the moon for each other with flags made from sheets down the hall, and I'd risk it all to kiss her under the light of earth, the brightness of home, but I can do all of that and more right here wherever she is. And when we gaze up with her arms around me, I will not promise her gifts of moon dust or flights of fancy. Instead, I will gladly give her all the earth she wants in return for all the earth she is, the sound of her heartbeat and laughter, and all the time it takes to learn to fall from the sky down the hall. And right into love. Man. I'll do it every day. If I can just land next to her. Five. Four. Three. Two. 
One small step for a man, but she's one giant leap for my kind. No, not yet. One more, and then music. Thanks, guys. I'm gonna two more, two more, two more. All right, two longish mores. <laughs> the third time I let my spirit roam free in front of a celebrity was February 2011 in Santa Monica, California. I was hanging. I'm a gassy dude. I'm a vegetarian. You know, like it's. I had a lot of beans tonight, so. I was hanging out with a small group of poets at my, and artists at my friend's house, along with Marilyn Manson. These are all true. I'm telling you guys, these are all true. Uh, and, and, and there's a number of poets who can vouch for it. Uh, <laughs> we'd exchanged greetings earlier, uh, but our conversation had split off. We'd been chatting over wine and whiskey when a small dance party erupted in the dining room, a party that consisted of yours truly and uh, my friend and fellow poets, uh, John Sands and Bo Sia. Now, uh, the groove hit us from the iPod playing in the kitchen. Bo and I discussed artsy things with John as we shimmied along, reclaiming our youth and the safety of our lovely friend's lovely home. The freedom of being an artist in your mid-30s allows you to dance it out in ways you never could have at your high school prom, especially your middle school prom. It loosens you up. It relaxes you. And if that you is me, it also unpuckers your furthest parts and releases a demon that was once called veggies and hummus. The very moment I let the dogs out... Marilyn Manson made his way to mine, John's, and Bo's soul train. He stood there looking as if he might join the dance party, greeting us with a nod. I'm like, Marilyn Manson's about to come dance with us. This is awesome. As I nodded back, still in the groove, his face recoiled as if he'd been punched by a ghost. Whoa, somebody fucking farted over here. But his eyes never left mine. I'm the exact shape of an ass buster. But I wasn't surprised by this. I had learned my lesson. There was no way I was ever going to be friends with Edie Brickell. And I was lucky Viggo Mortensen was so obliviously kind. But this was Marilyn Manson. And damn it, I was and still am Mike McGee. If I was ever going to be real and honest with anyone, I was going to have to be really honest right then and there. So without stopping the dance party, I just threw up my hand. That would that was me, dude. As Bo moved to open the sliding glass door for everybody, Marilyn gave me a look that went from Catholic priest watching one of his music videos to Caligula reigning over another orgy. Way to claim it, McGee. You are all right. But I'm going to go over here until this is gone. We've been buddies ever since. Thank you. All right. Um, so Boris is about to play some music. I'm going to do a little bit of music. This is my last piece. Um, this is a love story that I wrote for uh, somebody I... I uh, L- love very much. Um, and, uh, the, the music is by Sigur Rós. I have to give them credit because they're amazing. Um, and this just fits. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I love you guys. You guys have been fantastic. What a great night for one last night here at the Amadeus Project. Uh, thank you to the Amadeus Project. Thank you, Boris, for everything. Thank you, Robert Houston, for being the, the, the soul and backbone of this whole thing. You're amazing. Uh, I think this is like my sixth or seventh feature here, and I, I, now that I live here, I don't need a feature anymore. I think this is it. Uh, but I'll, I'll sign up, you know. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's called A Story of Us, or The Unflinchingly and Scientifically Accurate Account of How We Actually Met One Billion Years Ago. Several billion years ago or more, 
you began as an inert microscopic particle floating deep in space. Were any creatures aware of your existence, they might have named you something wonderful, but they didn't because, as we now know, eyes require a complexity too large to see the tiny spark and shine you had. Eyes didn't exist yet in that part of the universe. You had no purpose to be seen. But after a long hibernation that included the universe forming before and around you, a very large nearby sun died, one septillion octillions of times larger than you, expelling all of its energy, pushing you, spinning you away, along with newer, smaller particles that spun around you. You, now a wayward atom with a purpose you didn't ask for. Because as we now know, the act of asking requires lips and teeth and things. Shot from deep space, nearer the center of the universe, and after an extremely long, quiet, and relatively unencumbered flight, you landed on Earth's new moon, basking for the next very long ever, sitting there for some time, perpetually energized by the strong rays of the Earth's further sun, a new sun warming the even newer planet, terraforming itself quietly at your distance. You waited for nothing and no one. Your particles radiated longer than any particles have any right to do. You waited, and the moon took its time, inching closer to an earth growing bluer and bluer as millennia slipped by, and you waited. Suddenly I came into being as a gas particle from Earth's sun. That angry star banished sextillions of us for no reason, because as we now know, reason requires brains and love and shoulders. It is possible, but unlikely, that I sensed your tiny spark and shine on my 93 million mile flight. That would explain the slightest turn in my trajectory. I landed next to you and we sat on that lunar surface through so much time that we might have become inseparable. Our bond was inexplicable because as we now know, explanation requires a need to understand and understanding is sometimes a physical thing that just is. Just when we were settled, a large ball of fiery power blasted closely past us in our quiet home. Its tail as long as 100 of our moons. Its anger dragged us with it, and we flew right for the blue ball in front of us. Just before we collided with it, the fiery ball was consumed by molecules we'd never met before. Bigger than us, but friendly. They called themselves oxygen. They welcomed us as they ate the fire rock. They told us to settle in the coolness of what they called water. We landed in the big water and floated for some time. We enjoyed it when the oxygen would carry the water up high and then splash it down on us. We were one since before we left the moon, and we enjoyed this more interesting place together. Millions of years went by, and the weather changed billions of times. The oxygen took care of us, and the water helped us navigate. Creatures got smaller, and we honored them by adhering to other parts of them for their entire lives. We lived in the eye of a large beast. We were the most important part of thousands of insects. We were the least important parts of dinosaurs. We were the messengers for ten different hair follicles. We were the tiniest part of a bird's heart. We could feel it soaring from within. It always made you laugh. That was our favorite job. We made friends and worked so closely with so many like us and even more unlike us. We lived through so many cycles of cycles of creatures and plants. We lived as teammates in thousands of trees their entire lives. Lastly, we became part of a flower that got eaten by something. Then eventually it was left on the ground and got smelled and stepped on by a large dog. Its masters called it Shinjo and yelled its name angrily as it dragged us into their small dwelling. We were cleaned up and thrown into the garden. We'd been bonded for so long, I didn't think, we didn't think separation was possible until that morning when the garden flashed 
brighter than an angry sun. And everything around us was split apart, including you and I. I don't know where you went, but I returned to the water and searched for you best I could at my size. Decades went by, and I was drank by a two-footed master. The same must have happened to you. I became part of an egg, you part of a sperm. We grew to become two very different bipedal mammals. I lived in this man's voice box. You lived in your woman's heart. My loved art and the universe, as did yours, because we were in them and part of it in such a simple way. Because as we now know, the universe isn't just out there. It's also in here. My body traveled north to speak about all of this in simple but loving ways. Your body sensed all of what is in you might be in mine too. Mine knocked on the door. Yours answered. And I finally recognized that tiny spark and shine. Thank you, Bellingham. I love you. Thanks for letting me be home. Mike McGee, ladies and gentlemen, give him a hand. We're going to take a short break. I'm sure. Thank you all so much for joining us. We'll see you next week. next week. next week. next week. next week. next week.